when you kind of feel stuck or in a rut, you know, it's a time of real reckoning, I think, in terms of where do we see ourselves going? And so I think it's very, very important for us to be honest with ourselves about what we want out of our careers. Are we okay staying where we're at? Do we want to advocate for more responsibility? But I think it's important to keep communication open with our directors, our colleagues about what we want. And then also put yourself out there to take those leaps. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of World Strides inaugural podcast, Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McInnes, Senior Director of Campus Partnerships here at World Strides. This podcast is a weekly series of conversations with international education's most interesting thought leaders, as well as discussions on emerging trends, best practices, and innovation happening in our field. I am so excited about today's episode. We are talking about mid-career professionals in international education. Abby Cavazos is Associate Director of Study Abroad at Siena College in New York, and just so happens to be a very dear friend. Prior to joining the Siena College team in 2019, Abby held positions at Williams College and at the University of Connecticut, leading Study Abroad. Abby received her Doctorate of Education from Northeastern University last year. Congratulations, Abby. Thank Uh, you. (laughs) her MBA from the University of Connecticut, and her BA from St. Lawrence University. Welcome, Abby. Thank you, Zach. I'm super happy to be here with you today. And the good friend comment, thank you. You are a dear friend. (laughs) It's it's so true. Thank you for being here. Could you start by describing your current role at Siena College to us? Yeah, so my job here is as Associate Director for Study Abroad, and like many of us, kind of wear many hats, everything from marketing study abroad to advising students. I head up our faculty-led programming here at Siena, lots of admission events, working with our partners um, on study abroad, bringing them to campus, Um, so event planning, you name it. We are a small office. It's just two of us that work here in study abroad um, under the auspices of international programs, So uh, because of how small we are, we have to do it all. Absolutely. Abby, we live in a noisy world and uh, this field of ours, it it keeps us busy in our day-to-day, in our day-to-day jobs, right? And so what advice do you have for folks to make time to reflect on their career path in a meaningful way and to listen to that inner voice within? That is a really good question. And I would say that's something that I myself still need to learn um, and still need to work on. But for me, a lot of kind of my reflection and being able to process my career path, especially where I'm at now, having been in a number of roles over the years, has come from my network. Folks like you, you know, other people I know in study abroad doing things like the Global Leadership League. Actually, I joined this year. It was my first year doing it. I love it. I have met so many great people and made really close connections. So I think that networking piece, we're a close-knit field and we are very much like a family in many ways, I would say. I mean, Zach and I have known each other, my gosh, since my days at UConn, you know, I mean, for many, many years and people's paths continue to cross in this profession because we are a small field. But it's really important to kind of be able to take a step back and take advantage of some of those professional development and networking opportunities, but also to take time for ourselves and just be able to leave the work at home. And, you know, this is something we're all passionate about. But I think it's really, really important that we're able to make these connections um, with each other 
because it keeps us relevant in the field, but it keeps us passionate about the field. I think that's the biggest thing. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I always like to say that some of my favorite colleagues in this field are are folks who I've seen through a couple different phases of their of their career and vice versa. So, you, know, you and I have both known each other through a few different chapters in our mm-hmm. in our professional lives. So so I very much value that as well. And I really like the way you you put that. And so that segs very well to my next question for you, my friend, is how can we balance keeping some parts of our current jobs that we are passionate about, but continue to maintain the forward progression in our careers? Yes, I think that's that's hard. And I think, you know, so my background is entirely in the field of higher ed. I have not worked in the field with a provider um, or anything like that. And so I, I think this answer probably changes depending on where we're coming from. Right. And in higher ed, as many of us know, um, the wheels are slow to move. The cogs are not very greasy all the time. And that can be really, really hard when we ourselves, you know, our, our careers only span so long. Um, and when you kind of feel stuck or in a rut, you know, it's a time of real reckoning, I think, in terms of where do we see ourselves going? And so I think it's very, very important for us to be honest with ourselves about what we want out of our careers. Are we okay staying where we're at? Do we want to advocate for more responsibility? And again, I think that can be very difficult in the field of higher ed, especially smaller offices. There's not a lot of room for upward mobility a lot of the time, and that can be tough. I myself did take a job. I relocated um, back when I moved up to the Albany area. And when I did that, I did end up staying in the field, but I did take a job that was a little bit of a step backwards in terms of responsibility. Um, And it was just given the nature of the job that was available. And it was a wonderful job at Williams with my good friend, Tina, but it was just the nature of the position. And that was hard on my ego (laughs) and hard for me to, I think, really process. And, you know, now that I'm, I've got a job closer to home because I've got a family, I had to make some difficult decisions about what was next in my career. And I'm kind of, I think, coming up on that again as well. But I think it's important to keep communication open with our directors, our colleagues about what we want. And then also put yourself out there to take those leaps into positions that maybe you didn't think you're qualified for or are worried about, or maybe you don't have the managerial experience. Um, Being able to put yourself out there, apply for the jobs, be willing to take a risk and a leap, because oftentimes that's going to be the way we get the rewards, you know, that we're looking for. And it's okay not to stay in the same place for 25 years, you know, 30, 40 years of your career. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much for that. You know, Abby, you do a particularly fine job, in my opinion, on, you know, balancing your your many responsibilities at Siena with service and, and giving back to our field and, and finding ways to be involved in, in professional organizations. Can you talk a little bit about your philosophy and your approach to, to how you balance those two commitments? My journey, I should say, into international education was a, a little bit of an interesting one. I was in higher ed already when I found a job in study abroad at UConn. Um, so I didn't purposefully come to the field, which is kind of odd. It's not the way that most people kind of come out of college, they studied abroad, or they know of this field, and they're just like, this is what I want to do. I had been working in the field for over a decade before I found the field of study abroad. And so, yeah, it was really, you know, kind of one of the things that I loved the most about it when I started it was this camaraderie and the professional development 
opportunities that are available, but also the opportunities to give back. Um, and one of the things I grew really passionate about right away was um, underrepresented students and access to study abroad. Um, because time after time as an advisor meeting with students um, and seeing how excited they were to go and then hearing from them a little bit later and saying, I just can't do it. I can't afford it. Or my, you know, my family isn't supportive of me um, or whatever the reason might be why they didn't want to go abroad. And I realized like we as a field really have a chance to make an impact on each other, but also the students that we serve. And that's where things like the Forum and the Global Leadership League and NAFSA and Diversity Abroad and all these great organizations that serve our field come into play. And so, you know, now that I'm um, done with my degree, I, you know, did some presenting and things like that early on. And now that I'm done with my degree, I, you know, I have done forum working groups. I've been doing the NAFSA knowledge communities, hopefully presenting my research soon, um, working with diversity abroad on one of their communities of practice. It's, again, a really nice way to meet other folks in the field, but also just to see where everyone's at. And, you know, my service to the field is as much a benefit to me as I think it is a benefit to the field, if not more so. I hate to say that. (laughs) I don't know. I'm fairly humble in this. I'm not sure how much I'm contributing. I hope a lot, but I think I'm getting more out of it. I think it's just really, really important for ourselves. And it helps remind me of why I do what I do and why I'm in this field. Um, Because we all know there are those days when we go home and we put our heads in our hands and we scream or we cry or, you know, we've had that parent yell at us that day and just don't know if this is what we want to do anymore. But the service to the field, I think, keeps me very grounded and reminds me why I'm doing what I'm doing um, and helps push those those bad days out of the way and and that and seeing the students come back you know and after they've had these experiences so absolutely well you know I think the service of the field it, it connects us to a larger purpose right mm-hmm. you know like like you said you know uh, sometimes we can get bogged down in the day-to-day and of our work in education abroad with the emails and the angry parent and the, <laughs> the student who hasn't submitted their forms on time um, but you know connect making the, the time and the space to connect with others who are doing the work that we're doing and learning from them and sharing with them it, it makes a difference to me as well so I really like how you put that absolutely yeah um, what are some of the areas that you have contributed to? Um, within the field, you know, mainly it's diversity and equity. Um, those are the things and inclusion. Those are the things that I've kind of been very passionate about. And that kind of runs on the heels of the research um, that I did. So my research for my doctoral degree looked at HEOP students, which are, stands for Higher Education Opportunity Program and Access to Study Abroad. Um, and so in the course of my research, I interviewed um, a lot of our HEOP cohort. And I just asked them, you know, are you thinking of studying abroad? Why? Why not? What's going on? What are the factors that are going into this decision making? Um, And then I talked to students, uh, uh, HEOP students that had studied abroad. And what would you say to yourself before you went? What do you what would you say to other HEOP students? And that really opened my eyes to uh, the landscape, you know, as a white cisgendered woman in the field of study abroad that is dominated by women. (laughs) Um, uh, It's hard to sometimes take that hat off and see what's going on, you know, with our students. And I think the students really opened my eyes to what's happening on their end. And I think the other thing is that students have changed so much over the years since I started and not to date myself and make myself feel older than I am, but the students I'm advising today are not the students I was advising 10 years ago. And so that really opened my eyes to things that I hadn't seen in terms of 
opportunities we have for reaching our students. Um, and so the result of my research was to develop programs here at Siena for the HEOP student cohort. And actually, we just met with um, a group of them last week who were thinking of going abroad to really kind of go through, here's what this involves and here's what you need to do. Because they are a group of students that needs, they need our support and they need to see us face-to-face. We aren't some office that's randomly located across campus. Um, and so that really has has made me get more involved in diversity abroad, um, in the NAFSA education abroad knowledge community that has to do with DEI initiatives and what do DEI folks in our field need and, and things like that. So that's where I've been concentrating my focus now. I got involved in the Forum Mid-Career Professionals Group It was a group that lasted for one year. We were a great, wonderful group of professionals, and I became very close um, with everyone in that cohort. And that was inspired by Melissa Torres because she said there just doesn't seem to be much. She goes, this is a field she was passionate about, a part of our field and just professionalism that seemed to kind of be a black hole. And I agree. (laughs) We have a lot of support for people getting into the field, and then it just kind of trickles off. And so we're losing people in the field, and that's that's a problem. So what do we need? What do mid-career um, international edu- education professionals need? Um, so that was really great, and that ended up being the inspiration for the ebook that Tom Mellington and I put together, and um, also the um, mid-career professionals. It was a session last year at the forum. Um, so that has been a huge passion of mine too. And a lot of, we've heard from a lot of folks out in the field who said, thank you so much for doing this. You know, people who have been in the field for seven, 10, 15 years who are at this mid-career level who said, I, I haven't felt seen and I feel seen now. And our hope is that this continues. And I, I think it is continuing. I'm not necessarily hugely involved with it right now, um, but that's a part that I'm definitely going to keep contributing to as well. Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you for sharing that. You know, I, I couldn't agree more because if you go to a, a NASA conference or a regional NASA conference, there's all kinds of wonderful sessions for newcomers and first timers. And then, you know, folks who are, um, you know, at the director level or SIO level, they mm-hmm. have their own networks that they could tap into to, to find support. But, you know, but I've certainly noticed some attrition of talent in our, yes. in our, of our field, especially over the past few years during COVID. And as we emerge from the pandemic of especially folks with that in career. So we're losing a lot of talent. And so I guess, let me take your question and turn that back around to you. What do mid-career professionals in international education need to stay in the field? Oh, I would be a rich woman if I had the answer to this. <laughs> Based on what we collected. So, you know, some of what we did was we, we talked to each other. We posted things out there. We asked folks to contribute resources um, and things like that. Part of the working group um, defined what a mid-career professional is because one of the things that was lacking was even like, what does this even mean? Who are we talking about, right? So that was kind of one of the things we looked at. Like, we need to have a target audience if we're going to target them. Putting together resources. So what the forum has done, and it is on their website, which is, I think, fantastic. They took our work and they made a mid-career section of the website, which has general resources. Folks can submit a resource um, and qualifier. I'm not being paid by the forum or anything to do this. This is, this is just something. It's a resource that was needed and is uh, is put was put out there. Certifications, higher ed programs, equity and diversity resources written publications. Um, And there's also a competencies rubric. I think one of the big things we found um, that mid-career professionals especially were struggling with is career advancement. 
resources for how to advocate for themselves for promotions, even within the same institution. So, you know, I've been at the the assistant director level for five years. I'm sitting here and I'm not going anywhere. Can I advocate for myself to get bumped up to an associate director or, you know, executive director or something else like that? Because I've taken on more. Um, so there is a competencies rubric there to help hiring managers, but also um, employees to think about the skills and experiences that they have and that they've attained. Um, how do mid-career professionals need more help in advocating for their own professional development? You know, I think after a certain amount of time you've been in the field, um, oftentimes directors and or SIOs may say, well, you don't need to go to the forum conference again. You've been the past three years. What, what good is it going to do you now? And we work in a field where staying relevant is important for our own sanity and professional development, but for our students. Um, and so, you know, these are the kinds of things I think that are really important. But I think mid-career professionals also just need support and networking as well. We've seen attrition in this field, and it's not because of layoffs. It's not because of COVID. It's because people are finding other other ways to to make a living and other ways to to live their passions. I think that's especially true in higher ed. Again, my my experience is in higher ed, not on the provider side or other, you know, kind of spheres that exist within this realm. I know it's not just just us here in higher ed. But I think higher ed especially is at a reckoning in terms of attrition of very talented people. And that's a real problem, you know, and it's not just an international ed problem, but it is impacting international ed in a huge way. And so people need the resources and the support to get through these hard times, I think, that they're experiencing. And one of the ways that I've been involved with that is the Global Leadership League and some of the mentoring circles and career connections um, events that they have, which has been really, really nice um, to connect with other professionals, not necessarily mid-career, but to try and help other professionals navigate things, but also to be navigated myself, you know, connect with people who are SIOs. And, you know, if I'm feeling stuck or if I'm feeling like I need some support, how do I get through this? You know, how do I deal with this, this issue or that? And so that's, that's been really, really helpful. And so Dr. Cavazos, what, <laughs> thank you for throwing that in there. I love that. <laughs> and so I wanted to ask you about degrees. This, this is something mm-hmm. that comes up often in, in conversations that I have, especially with folks who are in the mid-career space. Mm-hmm. Do I need an advanced degree? Do I need to get a doctorate? And I know you also have an, an MBA as well. I do. Yep. Which I, you know, I, I have seen an increase of, of folks in our field who have MBAs, which I think is, is very transferable to the work that we do. So I would love your thoughts on advanced degrees and, and when the optimal time to get that is and just kind of your general thoughts. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. And honestly, I think it really depends on the person and and what they're thinking. Um, I would never recommend an advanced degree for somebody who's at all iffy um, about staying in this field. The type of degree you get, you know, I did a lot of research into the type of degree I wanted to get, um, PhD versus EdD, or there, you know, other ones out there. You know, I went for the EdD because it is a professional degree. The degree I got was what's called an action research dissertation, which is not your traditional five chapters, PhD. You do some research and you fill in a gap in the knowledge. Um, That's not the degree I felt I needed. I don't, you know, I don't know that I'll go ever into teaching. I might, you know, at the, at the college level or at another level, but what I wanted was to become more of an expert in a field. And what that degree did was allowed me to research a problem of practice at my institution, which was the HEOP students, um, 
and dive deep into theory, literature related to study abroad and international education in general, and basically develop a solution to a problem that I found. And I loved that about it because it was basically me just working a little, not a little, a lot extra doing what I love to do, which is trying to expand access um, to study abroad for, for students. And so, yeah, that, that was why I chose the degree I did. Like I said, I'm, you know, I don't, I'm not afraid to share my age. I, I'm a, I'm not that proud of a woman. Um, I'm 47 <laughs> years old. You know, I'm, I'm graduating. I graduated last year at 46. You know, I'll be, you know, am I going to use this degree? I mean, other than, than my own knowledge, I'm not sure. I hope so. I do use this degree every day, I'll say. But did I do it to advance myself somehow in the workforce? Not necessarily, um, because I'm, I'm good where I'm at and I don't, I'm not going anywhere right now. The short answer is no, I don't think you do need an advanced degree in this field unless you really, really, really are shooting for those top level SIO positions, in which case even then I know plenty of people who are in those positions that don't necessarily have them. That being said, academia is what it is. There's obviously a hierarchy within academia, at least so for those who are in the higher ed sphere, again, not necessarily in, in other spheres of this of this work. It doesn't hurt. I would say, you know, in the field of academia, especially that degree can be seen as helpful, um, can be seen as something like this person knows where we're coming from. So unfortunately, unfortunately, and fortunately, right, like the degrees are helpful in many ways. Um, unfortunately, it, it pains me to know that I'm sure there are people out there that may have been looked over for jobs because of not having a higher degree, but I don't think that happens as much anymore. I don't know that I would necessarily need the doctoral degree to be a director of a study abroad office, but potentially an SIO position, especially at a larger state or an R1, you know, kind of institution that may be a qualification that just is non-negotiable. So it really depends on the person and when they're thinking of doing it. My suggestion for folks who are at all thinking about the doctoral degree is um, don't do it just because you think you need it. Do it because you want it. And wait until there's never going to be a good time. It's like having kids, right? Like there's just never a good time. There's never going to be when you're like, I've got five to six years to not do much <laughs> with, right? Um but, you know, make it at a time when you kind of are like, okay, yeah, I really, this is really where I want to go. And you know that you're going to be able to dedicate, you know, some time to it and, and be able, it's not easy, but it's, it's doable, man. If I can do it, anyone can. I'm just putting it out there. Um, I am by no means anything above and beyond what everyone else in this field is. You just have to have a little determination and a little bit of passion and make sure it's in something that you love because you will be reading about it for years. Um, and if you're not loving the topic, it's going to get old really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, I love what you said about, about using, you know, Siena College as, as almost like a staging ground for your research. And then, you know, then you were able to bring back the solutions that you discovered through your research and apply them at work. You know, it's like, talk about, talk about theory meeting praxis. Yep, so exactly. I, love, I absolutely love that. How can we best cultivate a community of mentors when we ourselves are well-established and even experts in some ways as mid-career professionals? I think that's the tough one. I believe that many people, 
at our stage, you know, in the mid-career professional stage, don't see ourselves as mentors um, when we absolutely are, especially to those who are newer to the field. I think we, you know, a lot of us suffer from imposter syndrome. Like it's, I'm just, that's not me. You know, I'm not a mentor. Um, I had the same experiences going through the doctoral program. Like I am not doctoral material. Like I don't know what I'm doing here and I don't feel like I belong here. And I remember my advisor telling me, you absolutely, you're here, aren't you? And I said, yes. Uh, I mean, for now. (laughs) One of the many times I thought about giving up and told him that I wasn't sure I was going to complete the program. And he said, you're here. You're supposed that means you're supposed to be here. We wouldn't have you here otherwise. And I think that's true for mid-career professionals in the field. Like we're here um, and we have knowledge and, you know, whether or not you believe it, we have things to, we can help people in this field. We can help each other. And I think maybe that's something that is missed out a lot on. There's a lot of mentorship that happens from older to younger or more advanced to less advanced, more experienced to less experienced. There's not necessarily a lot of mentorship that's happening across lines. So within the mid-career sphere, um, it's more, it's, I think, seen more as networking and kind of connecting, you know, with our, with our colleagues. And I think that's potentially a sphere that we could really break into because while it may not be quote unquote mentorship in the traditional sense of the word, I think there's a lot of us out there that could really use. And I think this is especially true because a mid-career professional might be a program advisor, but might also be a director. So there's the opportunity there that just because you've been in the field, you know, for seven years, maybe you want to connect with somebody who's higher up and talk about like, is this what I want for myself? What are the, you know, tell me, and how do I get there? You know, and things like that. And that isn't just uh, an entry level to a mid-level to an upper level necessarily conversation that can happen. And like I said, I feel like there's a lot of us that, um, you know, a lot of mid-career professionals that maybe are starting to lack on the professional development opportunities because their directors or others, you know, there's not funding or they don't see it as relevant anymore because, you know, you've already done this a few times. Why do you need to go to this conference again? Or why do you need to do this workshop again? And so I think that that's, you know, these kinds of things, mentorship within our ranks, I think would be, would be really, really helpful. Yeah, I, you know, this is why I love talking to you, Dr. Fossos, because I, I have, I had never thought of that before, you know, because I, there's so often when I'm, and, I, and I'm, I'm in com- situations where I just feel myself as networking, mm-hmm. um, but really I'm learning from my peers. I'm, I'm learning yeah. from people who I see as, as, as my equals and, and, and just that makes me think about how I can take a more intentional approach to those types of interactions. So For I really sure. like that. Yeah. Can you describe a mentor relationship that you've had? Yeah. Oh my gosh. I've had so many over the years. Um, you know, honestly, you know, when I first broke into the field, I, I broke, I broke right into it. I have this vision of me running <laughs> through a banner on the football field. <laughs> when I first got into the field, my assistant director at the time, um, Summer Spaderna, who worked at, at UConn with me, um, was a huge mentor and just kind of getting me settled into this field, understanding what everything was all about, showing me the ropes when it comes to advising and programming um, and everything else. Um, And she was just very supportive of me, you know, throughout my years at UConn. So that was definitely a mentorship that I really, really value. Tina, when I was at Williams, my director there, um, I definitely saw as a mentor. Um, And, you know, she was the one that really kind of made me understand and see how different a small private is compared to the large state. And I think that breadth has, has really, of knowledge has really 
um, served me well over the years. You now, within the field of international ed, too, I mean, so many colleagues, um, Eliza up at Skidmore and I, you know, mm-hmm. communicate quite a bit um, and just a really great, you know, and this kind of thing, talking about like mid-career professionals need to support each other and, and have those connections and everything. So yeah, so many folks over the years, I, I, which I think I'm very lucky for. And it's probably one of the reasons that I'm still here in the field is that I've had so many folks show me the way and mentor me. I've also met Orlina up at University of Maine, who has been a huge inspiration for me. We got together through the Global Leadership League um, and ended up being connected in one of the um, career connections groups. And um, yeah, that's that's just been a great, you know, she's the director up there. And she is the one actually that encouraged me to go for the NAFSA um, DEI knowledge community and stuff like that. She's like, you really need to get more involved. And so, you know, having somebody that gives you that extra push and says, yeah, you should be doing this. Why aren't you? Um, so yeah, those are just a, just a few people, but I know that I'm very, very lucky, you know, that I've had, had so many people. So what is the most important lesson that you've learned over your career? Oh gosh, just one. (laughs) Um, oh, there's so many lessons, Zach. Um, I would say one of the biggest ones is don't take it home. And it's that is really hard in our field. And I still am guilty of it because there are times, and honestly, just a few weeks ago, I was on WhatsApp with a student over in France who didn't have heat or hot water and had just arrived and didn't know, you know, couldn't get a hold of anybody. So there I am at, you know, nine o'clock, 10 o'clock on a Friday night texting with a student in, who's in the middle of the night over in France. Um, but that's a part of my job. And, you know, and, you know, checking the emails and home and stuff like that. But I'm a mom. My, my oldest is 14. My youngest is 11. And, uh, you know, I have a family and a husband and, and a new, a new dog named Yeti, who's a very cute Pomsky and needs time, um, and loves me more than my kids do these days. (laughs) Being able to leave work at work, uh, I think as much as possible is really, really important for our mental health. One of the reasons I think there is so much burnout in our field in general and higher ed, international ed, you name it, um, is because of how much we put into it and then are left really depleted. I would say not taking it home is is a big one. You know, making that time for self-care, making that time for yourself, being able to unplug. Um, and again, self-admittedly, uh, you know, there are times when I'm on vacation and I'm answering that email because somebody needs to, it needs to get answered very quickly and I'm the one that needs to answer it. Um, but I try not to do that a lot. And I think the other one is always remember why you're here. My husband always makes fun of me because he's a person that, works for money. His first his first and main priority throughout his life and his career has been, I do this because it, it's a paycheck. I do this because I love it. And much to my detriment <laughs> over <laughs> at some points over the yeah. years, you know, have probably made decisions not based on, you know, external factors, but on my own heart, not wanting to either leave the field or, or making decisions about the, you know, my, my career um, that maybe, you know, could have been different. But over the years, I think the biggest thing is however frustrated we get and however lonely we feel or, you know, run down or whatever. Remember why you're here. And I have, it doesn't take me long to bring up five, 10, 15 students' faces who I remember were completely changed by their study abroad experiences and 
came back and just were like, thank you. And that's what I remember, you know, when I'm doing this, that like, I may not ever see those students again. They may not remember my name, but they're going to remember what we made possible for them. And that's why I do what we do. And my hope is that they're making this world a better place, um, you know, because of their abroad experience. So that always brings me back to like, yeah, okay, that's why I'm that's why I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And I think it's really important that we remember that because it's very easy to lose it um, in the day to day, in the mundane, in the angry emails or phone calls, in the the paperwork chase, all all of that stuff. Absolutely, the the importance of remembering our why of why mm-hmm. we're here, right? Exactly. You know, I always recommend to to friends and colleagues in the field to, you know, when they get a nice email from a student or from a, a faculty member or from a partner, print that out and hang that on your wall because it, it does yes. it does help us get through those those tougher days, doesn't it? Yep. So this year we are celebrating World Stride's fifty fifth anniversary by collecting the life changing moments of current and past participants who've been on our programs. It's been a lot of fun to read these stories. And I want to ask you to share some of your life-changing moments when you had a transformative experience overseas. So I studied abroad twice. I was an exchange student in Finland when I was in high school. Um, And then I was uh, abroad at Monash Uni in Melbourne, Australia when I was in college. What wasn't a life-changing moment there? Oh my goodness. With both of those. So you know, a real life changing moment for me when I was in Finland was celebrating Christmas there. So I didn't come home before the holiday. And in Finland, Yolupuki, which means Christmas goat, that's Santa. It, see, I still remember that. That's a, like, this is a long time ago. This is in high school. <laughs> I'm 47, is how they celebrate it. And they celebrate on Christmas Eve, not on Christmas. Christmas Day is more of just a day of eating and kind of relaxing. And I remember. They would have a neighborhood person dress up as Santa and come to the house with the presents. And so um, Yolupuki arrived and we sang him, we sang him carols and then he gave the presents, you know, and then he left. And I just remember thinking like, this is, this is absolutely amazing. Like this is, it's not, it's different, but it's not different. But just that experience of like, what a different holiday this is. It's so different from the Christmas that I had growing up and things like that. Um, and then, you know, was really at 15 years old, my, my mind was blown that like, oh yeah, of course everyone doesn't celebrate the same holidays and things the same way and things are different. And, you know, this, so I still tell my kids that Santa Claus comes from Finland. Um, <laughs> and then, you know, for Australia, I would say one of my most life altering experiences was scuba diving on the Great Barrier Reef. So not necessarily a cultural experience, but an experience that absolutely, you know, was once in a lifetime and seeing this gigantic organism that is so vital um, to our world and being able to see it up close and personal was just, I mean, second to none. You know, I will never get to scuba dive on the Great Barrier Reef again, I don't think. I don't, who knows? I'll try. But, <laughs> you know, it's it's rapidly deteriorating as well, you know, so I was able to go and see that. But yeah, those were two just absolutely fascinating experiences. Yeah, I love it when, um, you know, when students talk about experiencing holidays and, mm-hmm. you know, kind of those those cultural events and, yes. and, and when they're on their program and just kind of appreciating that for what that is. So that, mm-hmm. that's a great story. And thank you for sharing it. Final question here. Okay. As you think about education abroad in 2023, Abby, what is one thing that makes you hopeful? I'm really, really hopeful that our numbers, you know, that that students are 
still seeking out these opportunities and in many ways, you know, actively seeking them out. Like, you know, we're recruiting, but at the, like we have students coming to our office. They're like, my friend went, or I heard about this and I heard about that. And I just, I have to do this. And many of them are students who have never left the country, at least in my sphere, which makes me super, super hopeful because I do believe that global experiences create adults who have this knowledge of the world that is going to make tomorrow better. And so I think with education abroad, we've got so many passionate people in it. We've got so many people out there doing the good work and um, the students are going to follow and they're going to, they're going to hopefully, hopefully, my hope is that these experiences that we give them mean that, you know, when we hear about all these things happening in the world and the political unrest and the wars and, you know, all this stuff happening, these are the students that are going to lead us in the future. And my hope is that the more we're getting them out there, the more peaceful, the more just, and the better off our world is going to be. Uh, well, I can't imagine a better place to end it than right there, you know, creating a better world one student at a time. So thank you so much, Abby Cavazos, for joining us today. And thank you so much to our listeners for tuning in to Changing Lives Through Education Abroad. I'm your host, Zach McKinnis, and make sure you join us next week as we continue to explore topics around international education and exchange. Please subscribe to this podcast and share with your friends and colleagues. Let's create life-changing moments together.